Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm here at the conference of the Association of Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies in Portland, Oregon, to speak with Katie Harris, an Associate Professor of History at UC Davis, about relic thievery in the early modern Mediterranean. So Katie, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here. So to start out, I wanted to look at the ways in which people were collecting relics in the early modern Mediterranean. And you focus on this group of relic collectors in the 16th century in particular, and I thought they were a fascinating group. So I thought maybe you could just tell us who these collectors were and why they went to all this effort to try and collect relics. Absolutely. Well, relic collecting, uh, I think it's best to think of it as a devotional practice, right? So it's a Catholic devotional practice that we see, especially amongst, frankly, those who can afford it, right? So the wealthy, members of the nobility, crowned heads. And this is actually a practice that comes from many centuries before. So this is one of these medieval, we shouldn't think of the medieval as somehow ending in 1500. It doesn't. And so we have important relic collections like that of the kings of France and the, the Saint-Chapelle, the collection in Aachen, the collections, there's an important collection at Cologne. Um, these are older ones. And in the 16th century, we have similar collections being made by, well, think of Frederick the Wise, right? That's Luther's great protector. Mm-hmm. Frederick the Wise was very famous for his exceptional collection. And in the Mediterranean, if we take it to the Mediterranean, it's members of the high nobility, dukes and counts and all sorts of people like that. And of course, monarchs. So we think of Philip II, King of Spain, and his truly astonishing collection housed at the Escorial. Philip collected from all over his territories but also received uh, relics from throughout the Catholic world and, and around the globe, really. So it's, it's a, an elite practice, you might say. Uh, this is not going to be something that's going to be accessible to a lower sector of society, given the kinds of expenses associated and given the kind of social capital needed to, to collect. Really. So um, sounds like we're talking about a pretty broad elite group. And how did these people go about trying to acquire all these relics? Well, it's interesting. Um, it's a, it's relic collecting has been studied a little bit, especially by art historians who are very interested often in the reliquaries, but tend to be somewhat less interested in what's inside the reliquaries, right? So often, a, the, much of the literature has an emphasis on the container rather than the contained, but. Going from that literature and going from the other studies that have been done, it's a really interesting multi-pronged approach. So relics are given from one person to another. They're gifts. They are used to seal treaties sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that they're often used in diplomacy, not in, in other ways. So when an ambassador would come to Rome and be received by the Pope, there might be a gift of a relic to that ambassador. So they're moving around in some interesting ways. 
um, or being sent within families, shoring up connections within noble families. And so there's their gifts in particular is a really important way. Relics in canon law, they are interesting objects because they are supposed to be immune from the market. So in canon law, you're not supposed to be able to sell them at all, that they are somehow to be unsaleable. You can't put a price on them. Vulgar commerce is not to touch these holy things. And so we find sales of things, but it's not the sales of the relic, it's the sales of the reliquaries or compensation for the reliquaries. So there's a certain amount of slippage there sometimes. It's not always perfectly clear what's being paid for, but at least in theory, these are supposed to be objects that are somehow outside of the marketplace. And that's not true of other kinds of venerated objects. So for example, if you carve a statue of a saint or of, of Christ or the Virgin Mary, that object, that statue, or if it's a painting, those can be sold, right? But a relic is something else. A relic is not a representation. A relic actually is the person in setting aside any kind of, of issues of authenticity at this moment. Yeah. The relic actually is the person that it is representing, right? So mm -hmm. it's not, if I have a bone of Saint, I don't know, Cuthbert, why I'm naming Cuthbert, I don't know. If I have a bone of Saint Cuthbert, that's not a representation of Saint Cuthbert. That's not an image of Saint Cuthbert. That's Saint Cuthbert. Right. And you can't sell St. Cuthbert, not legally anyway. So relics are a different kind of object, right? So when we talk about these as being relic culture and the cult veneration of relics as part of material religion, they operate within material religion, but in some interesting ways that aren't applicable to other objects, right? Because they're objects and people at the same time. Right. Dead people, yes, but still people, right? So that makes them a peculiar kind of thing. And sacred people as And well. sacred people, right? Um, one of the things that, that became clear to me in thinking about this is, you know, what's the other category of thing that can be sold, but is also a, a, an object, a commodity even, but is also a person? And that's slaves. But the different, the, the, the saint and the slave, they have some commonalities, but these are very different categories, right? That the slave is not supposed to have any agency right? The saint, doesn't matter how dead that saint is, that saint still has agencies understood to be able to promote a thing or prevent a thing, right? So it's in a sense that that saint is as present in the here and now as he or she was in his or her lifetime. So it's an interesting legal category that I can't quite find a perfect analogy in other ways. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that, in a sense, the dead saint actually has more agency in this system than the living slave. Absolutely, right. I mean, and setting aside, of course, this weapons of the weak kind of modes of agency, right? Right. Setting that aside, operating here in the realm of theory. So you mentioned gifts. I guess you can sell the reliquary that might contain the uh, the relic itself. But in theory, you're not supposed to sell that 
content. So I guess that would be one way to get around the potentially, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and some gifts are gifts, and some gifts are sales, and some sales are called gifts. And what's the point where one slips into another? It's never quite clear. Right. But could that practice of gift giving also be going beyond just the pious desire to have these objects mm-hmm. in terms of uh, power relations mm-hmm. as well? Absolutely, right? Because it, these are these are objects that are about devotion. They're about piety. But they're also about power relations, as you say, and they're about status. That's a status symbol as well. What do I have in my chapel? I got it. I got shelf after shelf of relics. That's status, right? And it's a kind of it's a spiritual status, but it's also a status statement in the in the here and now. And that's part of what makes these such elite objects that they're only truly accessible to a particular kind of elite. And they are freighted with the social capital that I have a relic, one of those relics in my chapel. Well, that was given to me by the Duchess of such and such, or the you know Count so and so. Ah, that's it. That that shores up connections, right? That's family connections. It's political connections, etc. Right. So each one has a larger story to tell in that way. Now there are other ways, of course, of getting relics, and that's that's the illegal way. Uh-huh. There's the, there is indeed a black market, this sort of a gray area in, that that operates alongside gift and sale, and that is the the theft mode. Yeah, right. Which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. in the in the second half. But while you're on that topic, you mentioned these relic dealers, these people mm-hmm. who acquire these things. So how how do people go about trying to acquire these and and then well basically sell the relics even though they're not supposed to right well there's there's always going to be a great deal of demand because every every church really needs a relic you need a relic to 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 consecrate an altar and any church worth its salt is going to have at least one Mm -hmm. and in the 16th and 17th centuries you have parts of europe that will um, go over to protestantism and then come back into the Catholic side and those churches, those areas will have eliminated their relics and so there are going to be a demand, there's a demand there. So for, there's a great deal, there's some good literature on demand for relics in Bavaria as Bavaria is won back into the Catholic fold mm-hmm. in the 17th century. And we might also think also about the expansion of missionaries into the larger world, right? So this is the beginnings of what we can call global Catholicism. Missionaries in Peru, missionaries in India, missionaries in Mexico, missionaries in New France, right? Canada. They too have a demand. So this intersects with an event which happens in the the latter decades of the 16th century, and that is the rediscovery of the Roman catacombs. The Roman catacombs were never truly forgotten. They were major pilgrimage sites throughout the Middle Ages, but there are miles and miles and miles of catacombs under Rome, and only some of the major cemetery sites were the ones that were visited by pilgrims. Mm -hmm. And in the late 16th century, in the course of of digging for Pozzolana, which is I think used in in cement, and a, a major previously unknown catacomb complex was discovered out on the Via Salaria. And it caused quite a sensation for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's full of bones. And second of all, it had a lot of frescoes 
in there. And these are early Christian frescoes, and this is in a period in which there's a great deal of, of interest in the early church um, and the practices in the early church. So it caused a great deal of interest. And the flurry of interest in the catacombs and starting to explore and find new catacombs or previously lost and unknown ones intersects with this demand for relics. Mm -hmm. And so you have all these these applications being sent in to, to Rome asking for relics from the catacombs to be sent out around the world. You also have people coming to Rome as pilgrims or as visitors and wanting to leave with maybe a piece of something holy, right? Right. So leave with a, basically a souvenir. And they probably existed before this, but this is when we start to, to find them. They pop up in this way. Um, and I should say that we know about relic dealers from much earlier periods, right? Mm. Um, 9th century, 10th century. Um, but this... Here we have a group of people who will develop work as specialists on the ground to help out newcomers to town or those who may send in petitions to find those bones that they need legally, right? Through getting the proper kind of authorizations from the Cardinal Vicar of Rome or illegally. Right, so perhaps working through uh, black markets and cutting interesting kinds of deals. So it's a it's a multi <laughs> multi pronged kind of thing. Well, and what's interesting to me is that as you have well, essentially the beginnings of of globalization in this period and of a global Catholicism as well, that that is creating. It's not exactly a market demand for relics because it's kind of in a special kind of economics, but you're essentially seeing a more modern way of dealing with this object. You know, I think we have a tendency to associate it with the Middle Ages. We know a little bit about the economy in relics for the 16th and 17th century because those papers have survived or they popped up or we find some court cases, but I would be willing to bet that there's pre- pre-existed as well. Uh-huh. We just haven't found it yet. The, I mean, the earlier cases we have, Patrick Geary's book on Forta Sacra, or Holy Theft, um, and he's, he finds a whole network of, of thieves, essentially, mm-hmm. and dealers. I would suggest that it's, it's actually more of just a case of this is the evidence that's popped up, but perhaps there's also an intersection with this increased demand, especially in the latter part of the 16th century and 17th century, also in the light of a kind of more militant Catholicism and the reforms of the Council of Trent, seeking to shore up traditional forms of piety, but also eliminate a lot of the sort of more problematic or superstitious practices that had developed over the previous centuries. Mm -hmm. And I guess that push of the Catholic Reformation, is that also linked to the new interest in the early church? Absolutely, right? That there's a strong push to examine all the evidence for the early church to be able to prove as much as possible that, no, the Protestants are wrong, 
you know, we've got it right. We've been doing it. Here's the evidence. Here's these frescoes. Here, here is the the tombs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. So, um, an examination of the ancient evidence is exactly that. It's part of this this renewal process. Mm-hmm. And then they can say this emphasis on relics. That this is something that makes us Catholic. Right. Um, so that's it, it. All all lots of different threads intersecting yeah. at the same time. Never, I mean, it's not one cause. We shouldn't say it's because of the Protestant Reformation, this thing happened. It's actually multiple things happening all at the same time. Okay, great. Well, we're going to take a uh, short pause, and then when we come back, we'll look more at this relic thievery in uh, particular and how this played into the larger story of relics in the early modern world. Welcome back to the program. So for the second half, I thought we could focus on relic thievery, and you've already mentioned that in the context of these catacombs underneath Rome. So how did the relic thievery work in that sense? How are they spiriting these relics out of those catacombs? Well, what we know about it is that there were people, despite their there being prohibitions, right? And they're over and over, the, the cardinal vicar who's, who's in charge of Rome, right? He's, he's sort of delegated power from the Pope to govern Rome. He over and over puts out these prohibitions on people going into the catacombs. But I think it's useful to remember, anytime something's prohibited, you know that somebody's doing it, right? right? And the more times it's prohibited, the more likely it is that people are doing it. So he, there are people sneaking in there, and they're, they're all over the place. You can't guard all the entrances. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, people are, are sneaking in and going in there with torches, right? Because it's, there's no lights, and they're very dark, wet, dank, scary places. Yeah. And there, there are, of course, stories of people getting lost in there forever. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then these folks would go around and search for a tomb and break in. If they're doing it legitimately, they had permission, they've got uh, maybe a entourage. Um, they, they look for the so-called signs of martyrdom. So these are our insignia that were put on tombs, early Christian tombs, that were interpreted by 16th and 17th century visitors to the catacombs as being sure signs that the inhabitant of that tomb had been a martyr for Christ. Now, we know now that, in fact, these are just very common grave markers of the early Christian period, and they don't actually uh, indicate the presence of the, a body of a martyr. But 
you know, that's hindsight. Um, and there was actually, in the early modern period, a, a significant debate over this, right? Does a, the symbol, the Cairo symbol, does that indicate a martyr? Or is that just a, a pious person? Um, a dove? A palm? The letters B, M? Should that be, you know, you know blessed martyr? Or is it bona memoria? So these would be the things that would be looked for. Now, on the other hand, if it's somebody who's doing this illegally, they may not be so concerned with that. And it's possible, I suppose, that maybe some of the bones that were taken illegally didn't actually come from the catacombs, right? I, who's to know whether they came from somewhere else? But so they go down into the catacombs and, and look for a grave mm -hmm. um, to break into and take the remains out of. And we have some evidence from the 1660s, um, a particular treatise by a papal uh, official in which he's bemoaning this practice, um, bemoaning this this um, theft and these sales, and he actually gives us what is the current underground value, like the prices wow. that were being paid by people trying to to buy off of this this black market. So when it comes to these stolen objects, I guess there was more directly a marketplace. We can assume, it seems uh -huh. so. Um, there, the, the same treatise that I'm mentioning describes having seen in back rooms of shops where basically a relic dealer had his stuff and they're all kind of out there. But again, this is part of the hard part of trying to track an illegal trade. They they are by nature as invisible as possible, right? Right. Um, and to do that four or five hundred years later. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, this is this is what makes it so tricky. Do we know of any way that they tried to legitimize these, you know, to claim this, this is really a relic even though I stole it? Well, absolutely. Uh -huh. um, and there's some evidence that sometimes notaries could be paid off to provide the appropriate documentation. Um, that was very much identical to the, the documentation for the ones that were got re taken with authorization. In some ways, it's not a question of real versus fake. It's really more of authorized versus unauthorized because they're all coming from the same source. It's a question of whether they're being tracked or not or authorized or not. And the authorization paperwork, what are known as authenticas or autenticas in Spanish. These were very important and we, I have at least one case that I found of a person who sent a relic that he'd received from somewhere. I think it was being sent from Cologne in this case, not from, from Rome, mm -hmm. and sent it to the recipient and this was a legit thing, right? It had all the proper documentation, but he said, the letter said, the problem is you can't put this up on the altar because the authentication document, as I was traveling, it fell into a river and <laughs> it's illegible. And now all I have is this bone and the doc, you can't read it. So, you know, it's, it's the real deal, but you're going to have to put it on a side shelf somewhere uh, because the paperwork is no longer in order. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how important it was. <laughs> that's how, so it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of, you might think of it as a, a discourse of provenance yeah. and of, of documentation of paperwork. And 
if you think about it, the, the, without the paperwork, even if it's fake paperwork or if it's <laughs> illegal paperwork or forged paperwork, without it, what do you have? You have nothing. Right. right? It's just a bone. It's just a bone. And that's the problem of not having the appropriate paperwork. That's when we can see that in other places. So, for example, this other case that I've been working on, this other theft, not having paperwork is the whole crux of the problem, mm-hmm. right? You steal something, you think you're doing a good good work, or you have making a profit, but if you don't have paperwork, you have nothing. Yeah, and maybe you're referencing the case of San Juan de Matas that, that I wanted to um, ask you about as well, because I think it's a particularly fascinating story that I guess this saints bones were stolen by these trinitarian monks from spain in 1655 but from italy and so could you just tell us who san juan de matas was and why these monks would want to steal his remains absolutely so san juan de mata was a priest from provence in france and he's he's active in the late 12th century early 13th century he dies in 1213 if i remember correctly and he becomes a priest in Paris, and at the moment that he's performing his first Mass, he has a vision. And this vision is of Christ holding the hands of two captives, one on his left and one on his right. And one captive is a white man, and the other captive is a black man. And Juan de Mata interprets this as a sign from God that he is to undertake a a mission of freeing Christian captives from captivity uh, in Islamic territories. Um, and this is all happening. This is uh, this is bef- just before the Franciscans are founded, just before the Dominicans are founded. It's this period of of evangelical ferment, but also of enormous conflict in the Mediterranean. So you think of the Crusades, right? This is that period. Yeah. Um, so the founds the Trinitarian Order. It receives its, uh, its authorization from Pope Innocent III in 1198. And the, the mission of the Trinitarian Order is precisely that, to ransom Christian captives from Morocco or Algiers or other places and bring them back to, to Christian territory. So he, he's active in this period, the, the order spreads. He dies in about 1213 and he's buried in the orders, has a church in Rome, in San Tommaso de Formis. And it's a teeny little church um, up on the Chalian Hill. In 1655, two Spanish friars break into the church, which their their order no longer controls. It's controlled by the, the, the chapter of the Vatican, right? So it's, it's not under Trinitarian control anymore. Mm-hmm. They break into the church in the dead of night, and they bring a crowbar, and they jimmy open the tomb of San Juan de Mata, and they haven't thought ahead enough to bring a bag. <laughs> so instead, one of them takes takes off his underwear <laughs> and makes a bag out of his underwear and they take the bones of San Juan de Mata and put them in this bag and then go back out the window that they came and tiptoe back across Rome and hide the bones in their, their monastery. Mm-hmm. And they're eventually, the word gets out and eventually they have to flee. 
um, together with the superior of their monastery. And they flee Rome to the safety of Madrid. And they take San Juan de Mata's bones with them. The problem is, this was a highly illegal act, right? Um, and they are, in, in fact, sentenced to the galleys uh, in absentia, tried in absentia and mm-hmm. sentenced, sentenced to the galleys. But because it was a theft, there was no notary present. There were no witnesses present. There was nobody made a record of it. It's really only their word that anybody has to go on. And this means that in a sense, the bones are defenseless. There's nothing that identifies them clearly as the bones of San Juan de Mata. So what comes next is about 70 years of lawsuit pursued by the Trinitarian order in Rome, or it's more of a petition than a lawsuit um, that's brought by the Trinitarians to uh, the, the Congregation of Holy Rites to make the argument that these bones ought to be understood as the bones of San Juan de Mata, mm-hmm. despite the lack of documentation, despite the fact that they were stolen, despite all of these problems. So it's a, a case of stolen bones, but one that has these other ramifications um, they're not to be. They're not going to be sold. The the thieves give their their rationales. Why did you steal them? Because he wasn't being properly venerated, right? He was just moldering away there, and nobody was paying proper attention to him. But the thing is, by doing this, they ensured that in fact he couldn't be venerated, really, because they weren't sure that that was actually his bones anymore. So that really highlights what you were saying about the importance of this documentation. Um, I think you mentioned the, as well the importance of place, that before they moved the bones, the, you know, nobody questioned the validity, but once the uh, relics were taken out of that context, then there was all this all these Exactly. Questions. So relics, relics are interesting objects in, the, in many ways, setting aside the question of their authenticity entirely, um, that, which doesn't really interest me. I'm not really not care. About right, that. right. Um, they're interesting because much like forgery of any kind, think about a textual forgery. Textual forgeries make sense in context. Mm-hmm. It's when you take them out of their context that you begin to see that textual forgeries are somehow not quite working quite right. Relics too. They depend so much on context. And that context, what is that? It's the tomb. It's a reliquary. It's a, it's all of these things, right? right. Otherwise, they're just objects. That's mm-hmm. all. And you mentioned that at this time, the church was increasing its vigilance to make sure that it was authenticating these different relics. So how is it going about trying to do that? And why was it putting in this extra effort at this particular moment in time? Well, you could connect it with with the kinds of changes that come with the, after the Council of Trent, right? So think of it this way: Peter Burke referred to this as as a crisis of papal nerve, right? <laughs> that in in the 16th century you have this long hiatus from about the 1520s till 1588 or so, when there are no canonizations. It's as if the the whole papal administration sort of said, "We're just not going to deal with that right now. There's too too much going on." And when they do revive the saint-making practice, 
it's with much tighter controls and expectations for documentation, for witness testimony, for investigation. The sheer paper burden becomes much heavier. And if you take a look at how it changes from, say, the 1580s and on through the 17th century, it becomes a much ever more judicially regulated. It's a very careful process, mm-hmm. right? So. If saint making is that way, so too is the sort of the other apparatus of this, the whole saint veneration culture, including relics. So the expectation for documentation, the expectation for proper treatment, it's a rising level of expectations. And one of the ways we can see that is you can look to canon law. That's a useful place to look. But another thing to look at is beginning in about 1600, you have treatises being written by canon lawyers or other sorts of theologians or or folks like that about what are relics, how are they to be treated, how are, what can they do? What can't you do with them? Et cetera, et cetera. Where I, I've yet to find a treatise of this sort, sort of a, a think of a coherent monograph mm-hmm. on a precise topic, right? That suddenly you start to have a, it's not, that's not a whole genre. I don't think like five to six works counts as a genre really. Yeah. But they, I cannot find anything of the sort existing prior to 1600. So that suddenly there's this thing, you're going to bring in canon law, moral theology, ecclesiastical history, bring in all these strands and you create these, what amount to manuals for priests especially, but who are concerned with this issue, right? So teaching people how to properly handle them or more accurately not handle them, right? That, that they're not to be handled by the laity. They're not to be dis- displayed in certain ways. This, I think, is a demonstration of a, the larger concern for regulation. And with that, for channeling practices, devotional practices, and, and the rest of it into orthodox patterns, if mm-hmm. you will, right? So a way of trimming it down and trying to trim back superstitious or unorthodox or questionable practices. So I guess, again, you see this convergence mm-hmm. of an increased interest in relics on the one hand and then an increased desire to regulate the practices of the church at the same time. Exactly. So just to conclude here, I'm curious as to the the end of the story in terms of were these Trinitarians able to keep the the remains of San Juan de Mata after 70 years of legal battles and and venerate them? That's a great question. Um, They were. It was touch and go (laughs) for a while there. It's actually a legal battle that gets wrapped up in another legal question which is which I won't go into too much but basically part of the problem of San Juan de Mata is that he was not actually canonized uh. so he's one of these older saints medieval saints especially who had just everybody called saint of San Juan but there's no canonization he was never formally canonized and after, there's a couple of papal decrees that come out in 1625 and 1634 that say, if you have a venerating somebody who doesn't actually have formal canonization, you're going to have to basically apply to get 
authorization or acknowledgement. So there's a separate legal problem. So the, the cult is authorized, his veneration is authorized in, in 1666, and that amounts to a canonization. Um, okay. So there's a question of canonization and authorization of the cult. At the same time, there's this question of, oh, and by the way, can we venerate his body? And basically the Trinitarians apply to the, the Congregation of Rites several times. And several times the Congregation of Rites says, no, uh, basically that you haven't proven your case. Mm -hmm. Um, and then finally in 1721, after they seem to get a little more, they not only get some better arguments, a few better arguments, but um, especially get the support of the Spanish crown. Uh, okay. Um, so because it's a little bit of a political issue as well, they do win their struggle and it's ruled that the body is that of San Juan de Mata, that mm -hmm. it is, has been proven. So. Then there's festivities and the usual sort of Baroque hoo-ha. And his body is, I believe, in Salamanca. So I guess you can again see how you have both a genuine pious interest in these remains, but also a political element. That it, there's, they they're the never, the you can now. never separate yeah. <laughs> them out, ever, ever. Right. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for coming on the program and sharing this fascinating story of these relics with us and all that it reveals about the way of thinking and the legal religious structures of the early modern world with us. Well, thank you so much. It's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish history podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.